You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Today, I am with you today and I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, welcome to Bethel downtown. Uh, this is the new covenant community in the spirit, as, as Eric likes to say. And um, I am a, a minister of the gospel like you are. Uh, it, not, not that I am on paid staff here. I don't want to give you that impression. Um, but uh, I am a minister of the gospel. And, and uh, so I uh, offer my gifts to teach. And, and Eric was kind enough to let me do that. Normally, I'm downstairs at 9.15, my wife and I and the Dwight and Kami Evans. <clears throat> we, we lead the college young professionals ministry here at Bethel downtown. And uh, we are we're, we're working to get that rolling. And uh, if you are college young professional age or would like to be involved in that ministry, uh, come join us. 9.15 Sunday mornings. Um, we're excited to be a part of that and uh, to get to be part of that ministry on a regular basis. Um, yeah, so the, the passage that uh, Eric preached yesterday is we're concluding today the, the uh, sermon series in 2 Timothy. And um, uh, Eric asked me if I would take, and I, again, I'm honored, I, I get to do the conclusion. I get the very last sermon in, in 2 Timothy, the very last words of Paul uh, is what I got to, to, uh, to bring out as what Eric asked me to take. Um, Eric took the uh, previous uh, passage last week, if you joined us, and um, uh, I, will, I will begin in verse 9. Eric took 1 through 8 of chapter 4. Uh, Eric mentioned last week that he felt like his passage, 1 through 8, was uh, the, one of the central passages in all of Scripture. And uh, leaving me with one of the most peripheral passages in all of Scripture, I guess. Uh, this is a conclusion. It's kind of a, a typical conclusion to an epistle. And uh, so you'll hear a lot of names and a, a laundry list of people. Uh, and yet, as, as, I, as I prepared for this sermon, there, there is a depth here that I think we'll see uh, as, we, as we study this thing together. And uh, so hopefully at the end of today, you'll, you'll think that this is one of the most deep and rich conclusions to an epistle in all of Scripture. We'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but, that's, but that's where we are today. My wife, Myra, and I uh, moved here from Arizona where I was a pastor. I was actually a, a full-time in ministry. I've been to seminary. I went to Western Seminary. Um, and uh, so I've, I've done a lot of sermons, a lot of weddings, a lot of funerals. Uh, we went to a wedding yesterday, my wife and I did. We were at a wedding in Dallas. And it was one of those weddings where it was a beautiful setting. It was a beautiful wedding venue. Uh, about midway through the sermon, though, there was a commotion as, like, the, the last bridesmaid on the end on the left passed out and, and went down. So you saw the commotion. It's tough when you're the last bridesmaid because no one sees you when you're going down. I mean, at least if you're in the middle, someone can help you out. She just went down. So... So the, so the last bridesmaid took a tumble. That created a bit of a commotion, and, and uh, the, the, it happens. It happens. The pastor uh, recovered um, after a pause, uh, went on, 
Uh, to get to the conclusion, um, again, in this beautiful setting with, this, with the, uh, this glass background looking out on the woods, it was gorgeous, and got to the, got to the pronouncement and the, the kiss your bride part, and before the pastor could even say kiss your bride, uh, the bride leans into the groom, and the groom lays this big smooch on the bride, and it was obvious that the bride was now passing out. So right, so right at the end, the bride passes out, the groom grabs her in a full embrace, and, and they enter into, I, I guess it was a kiss, I don't know if it was the kiss or if he was doing CPR, I'm not exactly sure, but she was obviously passed out, so it was an uncomfortably prolonged kiss as, uh, as she finally came to. Um, and then, and then had, he had to figure out how to get her out of there. And, and so the, the groom just picks her up, which everybody's applauding. That's a cool thing to do if you're the groom, right? You're going to carry your bride out of the chapel. So it, it seemed terribly romantic until, until he started trying to navigate the steps with a long flowing bridal gown. Now he's tripping and you're thinking, oh no, disaster upon disaster. He's about to go face plant fully with this bride who's kind of white and still kind of passed out and he's about to drop her in the middle of the aisle fortunately he fortunately he made it out and everybody survived uh so and i guess the wedding is official it was it was a it was a beautiful thing it reminded me of, of my first wedding i have a picture of this this is my first wedding when i was a pastor in arizona it was actually this is uh, this happened to me so uh i i was just finishing up seminary so i learned all about you know the the theology of marriage, and I was really good doctrinally. I was prepared with my with my wedding sermon, and to do all the vows and everything, and to do the official pronouncements and all that good stuff. <clears throat> and so I was a bit nervous, obviously, in your first wedding. A wedding is a wedding is really is a really awkward thing for a pastor. It's pretty challenging because you know you got people right in your face, and you're kind of talking to them, but you got people back there that. And you got a lot of stuff going on. You got the rings. They wanted to do the unity candle. There was a kneeler there. Uh, I'm even wearing a robe. So that, I mean, how official is that, right? So, uh, so this, this wedding, I felt like was going pretty well. We got, we got most of the way through it, and they chose to have a soloist. The, the woman on the left in the pink is, is singing a solo. Uh, so the bride and groom uh, were cool. The wedding was going great. We're getting close to the pronouncement. And the last thing is this solo. And so it's a beautiful setting. Obviously, it was a, a lovely chapel. This is, this is a place called Grace Community Church in Tempe, Arizona. Um, the, the bride and the groom were staring lovingly into one another's eyes. The, the soloist is singing. You just, and it couldn't have gone better. And at that point, then, this guy, uh, who is, who is the, the groomsman behind the best man, he didn't come to the rehearsal. The one guy that didn't come to the rehearsal. As I knew in the rehearsal, what I've been told to tell people is that as you're standing there, if you start to feel faint, don't be a hero. Sit down, all right? And the other thing you don't do when you're standing up on one of these things is don't lock your legs, okay? Because what happens if you pass out when you lock your legs is, is you fall like a board. You don't crumple. You fall like a board, okay? This guy is like 6'4", 250. <laughs> And he, and, he, and he did not come to the wedding rehearsal, and he did not get the memo, right? So, so he stood there trying to not pass out and locked his legs and went down like a board. He, he brushes past the best man. Now, again, the, the groomsman is, is with the bride, staring lovingly into the bride's eyes, doesn't see this coming. This big fella knocks him square in the back. The groom's, he goes flying into the bride, knocks her flat on her 
bridal posterior, and, and so so it's carnage now. Every, just kind of people, there's bodies laid out all over the stage, and. and the cool thing, the cool thing is a soloist. She glances back, but she never misses a beat. So, so she continues on with the song. The the groomsmen drag this guy off to the room on the right, shut the door, and they they come back and hustle back and into their places before the song over. The song, the song ends, and we go on like nothing ever happened. It was it was the best it was the best thing ever. But that that was that was my first. Uh, my first wedding, pastoral, my first, first experience as a young pastor doing that. And I was just finishing up seminary at the time, and I, I'm pretty sure I probably went back the next week and said, you didn't tell me about this. Okay, there, are, there, are things, there are things that they don't teach you uh, in seminary, uh, and this was definitely one of them. Um, my, my, one of my early pastoral experiences, too, was not so funny, and that was my first funeral. Um, my first funeral was for a, a three-year-old child. A, a devastating loss, uh, lost a, a, a child who lost their life quickly. They, they came down with, with sepsemia, uh, got a call in the middle of the night, rushed to the hospital, and was, was with the mother and father as, as they held their child as he slipped from this life. I, I still have a hard time talking about it because it's, it's still emotional for me. I remember as a young pastor going through that and, and remembering that this is, this is another thing that they can't teach you in seminary, and that is how to suffer with people and, and, and the point of suffering and, and the fact that, that I would go through this experience many times uh, after that fact, being with people as they suffer, uh, trying to help them with the questions of why that come up. Uh, I just remember very acutely as a young pastor going through that, being with him at the point of death, and then preparing for the funeral as they, as they arranged for the funeral of their little boy. And I remember, I remember thinking what was, at the, what was at the top of my mind, what was my major concern at this point was that his, this little boy's friends are going to come. And I want to protect them from suffering. I want, to, I want to isolate them from death. And I was trying to figure out ways to do that, and it was... It was difficult because the family wanted to have open casket, and I thought, oh, no, please. And I tried to talk them out of it, but, how, I mean, how do you do that with, with a family that's suffering like that? That's what they want for their child. But, but here's what I learned. As, as we did the funeral, and as the children showed up, I, I, still trying to keep them to the, to the back of the chapel, um, it was amazing to me how much better the children did than the adults did. And as I, as I thought about that, I, I thought, I think the reason is because in a time like that, we adults suffer with this question of why. Why did that happen? Where the, the kids don't. The kids don't ask that question. The kids are, the kids are more accepting of, of just the, the fact of it as a, as a course of life. The kids were curious about, about their friend. But there, there wasn't that sense of shock or that sense of needing to know why. Why is it that we need to know why? I think part of that is, is because if we had that answer, maybe, maybe we feel like we can fix it. Maybe, maybe if we knew why someone was dying, right, then, then we could figure out how to cure it. Or maybe if we knew why we were suffering, maybe, maybe we'd realize that it was something we're, that we've done. 
And then, and then I could undo that somehow. I, I could give an offering. I could give a sacrifice, and I can undo that, and I could fix that. Maybe, maybe it was something that I ate that was wrong, and maybe I, if I knew why or what, then I could maybe change my diet and end the suffering. That is our society today, right? We, we, are, we are good. We've spent a lot of time, a lot of money. There are a lot of products that promise that, that you will not have to suffer. After, after the first uh, hour sermon, a uh, gentleman, his name is Kerfoot Walker. You may know him. He goes to church here. He's a, he's a retired physician. He came up to me, and, and he mentioned the fact that as a physician, what, what medicine has become has become very impersonal. Uh, because because it's a business, it's very quick. Past, uh, doctors can't spend much time with people anymore. It used to be, it used to be a very personal business. You used to have a relationship with your doctor, but th those times are gone. Uh, so so Kerfoot's thing was, what we do now is we give pills. We try to isolate suffering. We try to give you a pill for that. We try to isolate death, and that's what we spend a lot of time and money doing. But we want, we want easy answers, and that's, I think, why we ask the question of why uh, in the midst of suffering. I've, I, in, in preparing for this sermon and, and in focusing on suffering, and I'm, I'm sorry if you came here hoping for something a little cheerier, this is the end of 2 Timothy, and this is the end of Paul's life. And so, uh, so it, it's 2 it's, Timothy is very much a book about suffering. And I think in that, you'll find that there's some hope here because what I hope we can achieve together is to see a way in which we can suffer well. Because the reality is, if you live this life, you can't escape it. You've already noticed that, perhaps. But I, I've, I came across a book that I think is absolute gold. Uh, and I, I'm always reticent to, to recommend books from up here just because somebody will find something that they are offended with or something. But this one, I think, is, is worth reading. It's a, it's a book by a, a woman named Kate Bowler. And the title of the book is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives I've Loved. Uh, interesting title, provocative title, and an interesting um, uh, thesis on this. She is a, uh, she is a pastor... Uh, at Duke Divinity School, it's a Methodist, uh, uh, not a pastor, she's a professor at uh, Duke Divinity School, uh, which is a Methodist uh, um, seminary. And so she teaches Methodist ministers. Her, her doctorate came from Yale Divinity School. She did her dissertation on the prosperity gospel. Real interesting. <laughs> Interesting dissertation. So she did. She studied the, the the prosperity gospel. She went to a lot of mega churches that do the prosperity gospel. That that's their theology. And so I think she set out early in her dissertation to probably refute uh, uh, prosperity gospel theology. But what she ran across was this problem of why is this so appealing? I mean, she wanted to reject it out of hand, but she but she became more intrigued by the fact that all these people are coming for a reason. Why are people intrigued by a theology that is so shallow and so obviously false? And so, and so in her book, she writes this. Um, I keep reaching up on my head for my glasses. They're right here. She writes this. She says, uh, in, in her explanation of the attraction of the prosperity gospel, she says, I, I found this in my, in my experiences going to these churches. She said, believers wanted an escape from poverty, failing health, and the feeling that their lives were leaky buckets. Some people wanted Bentleys, but more wanted relief from the wounds of their past and the pain of their present. 
People wanted salvation from bleak medical diagnoses. They wanted to see God rescue their broken teenagers or their misfiring marriages. They wanted talismans to ward off the things that go bump in the night. They wanted a modicum of power over the things that ripped their lives apart at the seams. The prosperity gospel is a theodicy. It is an explanation of the problem of evil. That's what a theodicy is. It is an answer to the questions that take our lives apart. Why do some people get healed and some people don't? Why do some people leap and land on their feet while others tumble all the way down? Why do some babies die in their cribs and some bitter souls live to see their great-grandchildren? The prosperity gospel looks at the world as it is and promises a solution. It guarantees that faith will always make a way. I would love to report that what I found in the prosperity gospel was something so foreign and terrible to me that I was warned away. But what I discovered was both familiar and painfully sweet. The promise that I could curate my life, minimize my losses, and stand on my successes. And no matter how many times I rolled my eyes at the creed's outrageous certainties, I craved them just the same. I had my own prosperity gospel, a flowering weed grown in with all the rest. And that was challenging to me because I, because I realized tr that is true. All of us, no matter how much we can uh, understand the, the, false the false gospel of the prosperity gospel, we each have to recognize the fact that there is a bit of a prosperity gospel in each one of us. As we live in a, in a society that very much tries to minimize the idea of suffering and pain. But as we sang that song, so what I loved about that song we finished with is that even if you don't, I pray about these things. I know God can take these things away from me, but what if he doesn't? The questions of why that come. Now this, uh, I'll, I'll tell you as we, as we get into the section of Scripture today that we're going to study, this is not a theodicy. Okay? So a theodicy is an explanation of the existence of evil. I am not going to explain that to you today. Okay? Eric will explain that to you next week. <laughs> that's, that's not my goal today. My goal is not to explain away evil. And here's what I've come to understand about the idea of suffering and pain is that even if a person had that answer of why, is that going to relieve the suffering and pain? You may need, you may need that answer. I think it's more about the fact that we're trying to, to fix the issue. But even if you don't, even if we don't understand, what is the point of suffering? And, and, and so I think what, as we look at Paul and as, as we look at how his life ends, I think we can understand something about suffering from Paul. As we would all agree, Paul suffered a great deal. But I think what we'll see, though, as we look at as Paul's life is, is how to suffer well. How to suffer well. And so, so what we're going to look at as we look at 2 Timothy, starting in verse 9, here's what, here's what I think I see in this passage. To suffer well is three things. To suffer well is to suffer with God's people. To suffer well is to suffer with God's purpose. And to suffer well is to suffer with God's patience. I think we'll see that as we look at our passage for today. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy starting uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 9. And let me read the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll break it down together. Chapter 4, starting in verse 9, Paul says this to Timothy, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. 
I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Putin's Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And so Paul concludes. Come quickly. That's Paul's words to, to Timothy. Um, come quickly because Paul knows his end is near. That's the big picture. Again, if we were to take a, a summary of all that we've learned from uh, 2 Timothy, clearly we would, we would see that this is not a happy book. As I was trying to figure out how to summarize 2 Timothy in conclusion, I stumbled across this uh, quote from a, the a theologian named Lemony Snicket. Can be familiar with that? Lemony Snicket. In, uh, in, uh, in his uh, first book on, uh, uh, what is the name of the series? Uh, un series of Unfortunate Events, thank you. Series of Unfortunate Events. Here's, here's what he says. I think this applies, obviously he wasn't writing this about 2 Timothy, but I, I think this applies well. This is, this is how he introduces his series. He says, if you're interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there's no happy beginning and very few happy things in the middle. That's, I think, a sufficient, ex a sufficient summary of 2 Timothy. It's a tough book. There's a lot of suffering there. And, and, and Paul, again, is no stranger to, to suffering. Let's take a look at all the mentions in Paul's letter to 2 Timothy. Here's all the mentions of the word suffering. Now, remember, this is, this is an older, experienced pastor writing to a younger pastor. And this is one of those things where, as a younger pastor, I wish I had had this, Right? Because what I encountered right out of the chute in ministry was, I am not prepared for suffering. But so Paul wants to prepare Timothy for suffering, and so he writes to him all these things in the book of 2 Timothy. And as he writes, uh, I will read them here. You get a, a little a portion of it, but here's what he says. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.8, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, again, as we read through these, look and think about this. Does Paul ever offer the theodicy? Does he ever offer the, the answer to that question of why? No, but, but in it you will see a couple of things. Number one, that, there's, that there is suffering. He never, he never uh, uh, avoids that. He also never gives the easy explanations for it. And there's always a focus on uh, the future. There's always a focus on the, the better things ahead. Um, 
uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Uh, verse 10, chapter 2. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Chapter 3, verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That'd be a decent thing to tell seminarians, right? Underscore that one. Uh, chapter 4, verse 5, But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And, and then in the uh, passage from last week, he mentions that this gives some sense of the urgency where he tells Timothy, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. If, if you've been here for this study, you've recognized the three things that are constant throughout Second Timothy. In all these passages, Eric has been good to say the three things that show up every time is the idea of suffering, is there, uh, God's word, and then a, a, an evaluation in the future. And we see that all the way through Second uh, Timothy. So again, those three things, as we look at this, I think the three things, again, that pop out are, are how do we suffer well? That first point, we suffer with God's people. If I am to suffer well, I need to focus on how I will suffer, and that is to suffer with God's people. He brings that out here. As, as, you, as you read this last section, what you sense is that Paul is reaching out. He is trying to gather people to himself. He says, do your best to Timothy to come to me quickly. He knows his end is near. But then he mentions this, which is kind of tragic. He says, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Paul, again, knows his end is near. It is coming quickly. Uh, as we've mentioned before in this series, this is written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. This is his second imprisonment. The first imprisonment in Rome, he was under house arrest. It's kind of like um, Airbnb, I suppose. Uh, com compared to this imprisonment, it really was more like Airbnb. Under house arrest, Paul could freely receive guests. Paul could write. Uh, people were able to come in to him, visit him, dine with him. He was able to visit people around the city of Rome. House arrest was a piece of cake compared to this. Uh, what, we, uh, what we think we can put together, um, the, uh, Luke, who was with Paul during this time, writes the book of Acts, and Acts records Paul's ministry in the second half of it all the way up to his first arrest in Rome. And, and, and that's where Acts leaves off. Paul, at, at the end of Acts, Paul is still under arrest, uh, first arrest in Rome. Now, what we know, uh, at least what we can piece together in church history, is that Paul is released from that first arrest in Rome. He travels about, perhaps, for four or five years. Uh, he writes some, some other letters. Uh, he leaves some people in place. First Timothy is probably written during that time. Um, 
and, and then he is rearrested in Rome. Well, here's what, if the timeline is correct, here's what we know happens. The, the emperor in power in Rome at the time is Nero. You might have heard of Nero before. Nero is a, a, a young emperor. He's, he, he comes to power in his 20s and um, is a bit crazy. But all the, all the Caesars actually are uh, kind of a bit crazy. There is a fire that breaks out in Rome. Uh, it's a suspicious fire. It burns down a lot of buildings. It's well known that Nero didn't like a lot of these buildings. Nero didn't particularly care for some of the look of the architecture in Rome. So when this fire breaks out, it's very suspicious, and people start to understand that this was probably Nero who started it. Now Nero, being very wise and cagey, realizes I've got to find a scapegoat. So who does he blame? Christians. So Nero fingers the Christians for that. These Christians are insurrectionists. These Christians, at this point, uh, it's, it's long enough away from the foundation of the church where Christians are no longer seen as a sect of the Jews. Christians are seen as their own thing. There was some protection, at least, being seen as one of the Jewish sects because uh, at least the Jews had a bit of leverage, but Christians do not. Christians are seen as insurrectionists. Uh, they, they, they meet secretly in the catacombs underneath the ground. They uh, refuse to bow to the official gods of the Romans. Uh, they, they do weird stuff in their ceremonies, probably practicing magic or something like that. So, it's e so they're an easy target. So, so Nero pins this, this fire on the Christians. And then there is an outbreak uh, of persecution against Christians in Rome. Uh, and and it, is, it is recorded in, in history uh, that even to the point where Christians are used as torches to light the streets. So the persecution breaks out um, hard against the Christians, and it's, it's probably this persecution, it's probably this sweep that catches Paul up, and Paul is brought into this Mamertine prison. The intention, again, of the Mamertine prison is, is Romans typically wouldn't incarcerate someone and put them in a jail. House, house arrest was typically the way to do it. But if you were ended up in an incarceration like this, it was either because you're on trial or you're, or you're scheduled for execution. We know that is the case by church history with Paul, is that he doesn't make it out of this prison. This is where he's executed. Very likely, Paul is beheaded, uh, which was uh, a privilege of a Roman citizen. Uh, if, you, if, you didn't, if you weren't privileged, uh, your execution would be more like crucifixion. Um, we also know from history that it's very possible that Peter was also in this prison and that Peter is going to be executed as well. But we know from church history, not from scripture, but from church history, Peter's going to be crucified, but Peter didn't want to be crucified like Christ. He didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like Christ, so he requests that he be crucified upside down. Uh, apparently this prison is, I've not, never been to Rome, but apparently you can visit this Mamertine prison. It's still there, and there are inscriptions to, to talk about the fact that Paul was there, uh, Peter was there, and that that's what happened. So that's the, so that's the big picture, and that's why this, this idea comes out, and, and there's an urgency. Do your best to come to me quickly, and then he brings up this idea of Demas. And so you get this sense that Paul, in trying to, to uh, live through this, is going to surround himself by people that, that he loves. And, and he feels the pain sting of Demas's departure. He says, Demas, because he loved this world, has uh, deserted me. Demas has forsaken me and has gone to Thessalonica. That idea is uh, kind of more, more of a literal translation that Demas 
uh, having loved the now eon, which is a, a kind of a weird choppy uh, translation, but that's kind of the literal Greek from that, meaning that Demas, having, having loved the times as they are, uh, I think the sense is from Paul that Demas, having weighed these things in the balance, and Demas realizing that he could either stay with me and be associated with me and very possibly risk his death, has determined that it would be safer and better if he left, is kind of the thought. Uh, as I read this, I'm convicted by that because I realize in this scenario, I'm, I'm really more of a Demas, frankly. If, if, there's, if there's a persecution like this, if there are executions happening, would I be like a Demas? Would I, would I hightail it out of there? And, and so Paul feels that, he feels that departure. Uh, he feels that separation. Demas, because he loved this world, has departed me and has gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. We don't know if Crescens and, and Titus were, uh, were a desertion as well. Uh, it, it almost seems that way because they're tied in, the, in near passages. But it may be very well that Paul just sent them there to continue on in the ministry of proclaiming the gospel to the church. And then Paul says something very interesting, which I think is really encouraging. Paul tells Timothy, get Mark and, and bring him with you. Uh, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Get Mark. This is the same Mark which we know is John Mark. Now here's what happened in Acts. John Mark was, uh, would accompany Paul on the early missionary journeys, uh, typically associated with Luke. Um, there was an occasion in which uh, John Mark left Paul in one of, the, one of the early ministries. Paul had just encountered a, a Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, and um, after that, it's recorded in the book of Acts that John Mark departed. A little later on, um, Barnabas and Paul were planning an, another journey, another visit to a church, and Barnabas said, why don't we bring John Mark along? And Paul vehemently said, absolutely not. He left me once. We're, gonna, we're not going to have John Mark. Barnabas and Paul had such a disagreement about it that Barnabas and Paul actually split ways and went their separate directions. Presumably then John Mark went with Barnabas and they continued on in the ministry. That separation has always been uncomfortable to me. That there are believers like this who, who separate over someone like this. But the encouraging thing is at the end, as Paul is nearing his last days, there is a restoration of this relationship. And so he tells Timothy, bring John Mark with you because he's useful to me in this ministry. So I'm, in, I'm encouraged by that. Uh, and then he mentions Tychicus. Um, uh, I sent Tychicus to an Ephesus. Again, that initial, initial passage gives me a sense that Paul, as he's suffering through this, what he wants to surround himself are with people that love him and people whom he loves. And so the idea is, is suffering together. So to suffer well is this first point, is to suffer with God's people. I used to think it was an incredibly insightful exercise to consider um, who you want your pallbearers to be, right? When, at your funeral, who do you want your pallbearers to be? I used to think that was a good thing. That was kind of help you understand who your friends are. After reading this passage, I, I think that's a silly thing, right? Because I could care less who my pallbearers are. I really, Larry Moe and Curly would be fine. Uh, um, or Mr. C's Moving Company. That's cool. I'm good. I'm good with that. Because, you know, here's the point. I won't be there, right? I won't be there. And I'm not coming back to check up to make sure that uh, the furniture was handled correctly. 
So here's, a, here's I think, a, a more, maybe a more difficult one to consider, but I think something that comes out of this passage is um, who would I want to be around my bedside when I'm dying? That might be a more difficult one. Do I, do I have friends? Do I have uh, friends who would come and surround me during those difficult days when I'm dying? It doesn't even have to be dying. What about just suffering? Uh, some, some difficult event. Who are the people who would come and suffer with me during a difficult event? Maybe even a more difficult question is, am I, that? am I a person who would be willing to go be by somebody's bedside when they're dying or go suffer with someone when they're dying? To suffer well is, is to suffer with God's people. And then the second point is this. To suffer well is to suffer with God's purpose. As the passage continues, you'll get a sense as Paul is, is talking this through at his, at his end that he never stops his concern for proclaiming the gospel. And he says, when you come, he says to Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially my parchments. Well, what's he going to do with that? He's going to keep writing. He's reading, he's writing, he wants to keep disseminating the gospel. He wants to keep writing these letters, to keep encouraging people in the word. He is facing his death. He knows he's going to die. This is the death penalty. And what he's concerned about? Bring me my paper. Because I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep encouraging. He mentions Alexander the metal worker. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. We don't know anything about this other than this mention. Uh, we don't know who Alexander the metal worker is. Uh, it's very possible that whatever Alexander the metal worker did was the reason Paul finds himself in this prison and the reason why Paul will be executed. Uh, but we don't know what that was. Uh, it is, but it is sufficient to note that when Paul brings up Alexander the metalworker, he gives a warning to Timothy to be on guard against him because whatever it was that Alexander the metalworker did, he strongly opposed our message. So Alexander the metalworker very possibly used the gospel against Paul maybe to trump up insurrection charges or something like that. Whatever it was, it was sufficient enough to do Paul a great deal of harm. Which is, for Paul, I mean, Paul has already experienced a great deal of harm throughout his life, so it's pretty significant that he brings this up, uh, and I think significant to understand that that is what, what the charges were that brought him into this prison. Alexander the metal worker did be a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. And my first defense... No one came to my support. There, there Paul once again mentions the fact that he feels deserted, which is, which is another point uh, that those who suffer, what they need most is maybe not an answer of why, but what they need most is people to come alongside them. At my first defense, um, uh, everyone deserted me. Again, it's one of those, it wasn't just uh, the person that he calls out earlier, uh, that's deserted me. Demas deserted me. Now he says, everyone, at my first defense, everyone deserted me. Uh, back in the first chapter of Second Timothy, he mentioned that all of Asia Minor deserted me. Pretty incredible. <laughs> like, no one came to Paul's defense for this. Everybody realized 
how significantly dangerous it was to be around Paul at this time. He says, he says no one uh, was around me. Everyone deserted me at my first defense. We're not sure what that means exactly. The, uh, it could possibly mean that in this imprisonment, there were a series of trials, and that at the first trial, uh, Paul had to defend himself, and that no one was there to stand by him at that trial. It's sad. Uh, it also could mean that he's, he's referring back to his first imprisonment in Rome and saying, everyone deserted me there. But we know that's not the case. So it's likely isolated to this imprisonment. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. There Paul offers a, a bit of grace uh, to those who would desert him. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Once again, what you hear is the heart of Paul in terms of purpose, suffering with God's purpose. At the very end, what Paul is concerned with is that the message of the gospel might be fully proclaimed. I think it's cool that he could say that, that at the end you get a sense that Paul felt like his ministry had culminated completely. Uh, the, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength that the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul had a sense. Now, Paul didn't real obviously he didn't think that all the Gentiles living at the time heard the gospel because of Paul. But what he's saying, what he had a sense of is that this is God's purpose for his life. Paul knew that what, what Christ had commissioned him with was to be uh, uh, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul is going to hold on to that purpose to the very end. Even in his last days, he's still asking for paper. He's still talking about proclaiming the message. He's still talking about proclaiming the gospel, that, that everyone might hear it. Uh, I, think, I think that's significant, that idea of dying with, with, a, with a purpose and fully discharging your purpose uh, on this earth. And then he mentions that I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Could mean a couple of, of things there that may be that may be a reference to Nero, um, that that in in this first trial he wasn't executed and so therefore was delivered from Nero, delivered from the lion's mouth. It could also mean the mode of execution that sometimes happened uh, in Rome was for entertainment purposes. Uh, they would they would throw people out in in the uh, hippodrome and let them be attacked by wild animals, lions included. Uh, so that was that was entertainment. Uh, so uh, th he may be referring to that as well. But but this, the second thing though is is the focus on purpose. The idea that Paul had purpose and that in his last days, what he's going to die with is purpose. Um, I am of an age uh, now where I, I used to think I'm, I'm able as with thinking through the idea of, of the end and purpose and those kind of things. I used to think when I was a young man, I used to think, I used to think death was an event. You know, is there something that's going to happen a long time from now? It's an event. It happens. It's over. It's done. You move on. As I get older, some of you may, may uh, agree with me on this. As you get older, you realize death is not an event. For most people, death is a process. Uh, it, it comes slowly. Uh, and, and the idea of preparing for it becomes... I guess more important as you age. And one of the things I see in Paul that I think is challenging for each and every one of us is this idea of what is your purpose? What is the purpose you're going to die with? 
I, I can tell you from members of my own family, it seemed to me that the, the purpose of their whole life was to retire. Uh, there's a problem with that purpose. Uh, w once you've achieved retirement, what's the only thing left after that? You die, right? You die in retirement. And it's great, but, but I mean, I, I can speak. Uh, uh, unfortunately for my father, he, he, he was a, a great dad in terms of being a provider, worked very hard, worked for the same company for like 35 years. Uh, but, but when he retired, he spent so much time and effort on work that once he retired, there, what else was there to do? And, and honestly, garage sales were a big part of it. And, uh, and he played a lot of solitaire on the computer. Um, but what is your purpose? Is there, is there a purpose that drives you that, that at the end, you would spend your last moments doing this thing? That's what Paul's doing. He is so, he is so uh, given to the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and to building his life into others that even his last days, facing his death, he is going to continue to proclaim the gospel and he's going to continue to build himself into the, into the lives of others. So, so to suffer well is to suffer with God's people and to suffer well is to suffer with God's purpose. And then, and then the third thing is to suffer well is, is to suffer with God's patience. Uh, Paul continues, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, which I think is an amazing thing for Paul to state because... Again, back to that song, even if you don't, what, what do we see with Paul is that the Lord, in my opinion, didn't rescue him from every evil attack. But that's not where that sentence ends. And so we have to see it as the fact that Paul is looking beyond. He is looking to a destination that I'm not seeing. He's looking to a destination. He knows this life is not the end. He knows that there is a destination beyond this. So he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. Again, on a horizontal basis, that can't be true of Paul. But he says, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's the goal. That he will be rescued in that sense. That he will be delivered safely to his heavenly kingdom. That word delivered safely to his heavenly kingdom is, is translated elsewhere as saved. Paul, Paul looks forward to the day when he will be saved. Well, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Because we think of salvation, we think that I am saved meant that I trusted Christ at some time in the past and that I am saved from my sins. That I'll go to heaven because I, because I did something in the past, point in time, and in that sense I'm saved. That's the same word here used as saved, but, but if, you've, if you've come to this church for any amount of time, you recognize the fact that, that that word we get saved from or salvation from really really has three tenses. There is that past tense which we commonly understand, and that's justification. That, that I have been saved if I've trusted in Jesus Christ and I am saved from the penalty of sin. That's an important step. But there's also a sense in which I am being saved. It's okay for believers to say I am being saved because there is a salvation that is happening right now for each and every one of us as believers which we commonly call sanctification. That is, I am being saved from the power of sin. That is a process, not a point in time. That is a process in which we are in as believers in Jesus Christ right now. Same word, saved. But Paul uses it in the third tense, which is a futuristic tense that, that I will be saved. It's okay to say that I will be saved. Paul looks forward to that salvation. I will be saved. That's glorification. And that is I will be saved from the presence of sin. 
That is the tense in which Paul is looking forward to. That Paul, that he says, the Lord will rescue me from every attack and will bring me safely. He will save me to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That, that thought right there makes Paul pause and, and kind of create a doxology, a doxology out of it. And, and writes the words, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Kind of that, that pause, that, that is kind of a consuming thing for Paul at that point. Uh, and then he goes on to say, Greet Priscilla and Aquila um, uh, and the household of Anisiphorus. Anisiphorus is mentioned in the first chapter. Anisiphorus is, is very instrumental in providing care for Paul. Uh, prisoners at the time didn't get meals. They didn't get cared for. Uh, people from their family or from the community who would care about the prisoners could bring them food. Anisiphorus was one who lived in Rome and risked his life and his family's life probably to care for Paul and Paul is grateful for here uh, and says uh, uh, Greek Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Uh, winter would be a time in which navigation uh, over the sea well, it was impossible. So they, the, the weather was too bad they would shut the ships down for the winter and so if you, if you had to get to Rome at that point from somewhere else, you would have to travel by land. And so Paul said, try to get here before winter, being the quickest path uh, for Timothy to get to him. Uh, get here, uh, try to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, so do Putin's, Linus, Claudia, and the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you all. And so that is the conclusion of Paul's works as he gives those greetings uh, to Timothy. The Lord be with your singular spirit, talking to Timothy. Uh, grace be with you all, plural. So that's the section. If we're to suffer well, then we're, we're, we're to suffer with God's people. We're, we're suffering, we are to suffer with God's purpose. And we're to suffer with God's patience. That idea of keeping our eyes on what is to come. And patiently waiting God's work through all of this. As, as a conclusion, I want to kind of just kind of wrap this up with some applications that I think would be helpful as we consider these things. Just three things um, that come out of this that I believe are helpful as we look at this. And that is this idea of suffering. And that I would put it this way, that first thing I note is that suffering is a team sport. You, you don't need to have answers. If you, if you are going to be with someone who is, who is suffering, remember that you don't need to have answers. Uh, but just being there is good enough. Uh, Kate Bowler, again, in, in, this, in this book, Everything Happens for a Purpose, she says the truth is that no one knows what to say in times like that. Uh, it's awkward. Pain is awkward. Tragedy is awkward. People's weird suffering bodies are awkward. But take the advice of one man who wrote me with his policy, show up and shut up. The, the, the thing is to be there. Uh, I didn't read this in the, in the first hour, but I, I thought this was really good. There's an appendix in the back. Again, <laughs> I'm, I'm always reluctant to, to advertise books from the front. Uh, this is a tough one to read because uh, Kate Bowler, is, uh, she, she got cancer, stage four cancer. I don't know if I explained that. That was my mistake. She, she got uh, stage four cancer and didn't know how long she would have to live. She still has cancer. Uh, it's being treated. Um, but she still doesn't know how long she has to live. So this is, this is a book that explains um, from the backdrop of her studies in the prosperity gospel uh, and then going through this cancer. That's why she writes about the fact that the prosperity gospel is so attractive. For someone like her going through untreatable cancer, 
the, prayer, the prosperity gospel kind of answers those, those easy answers. And so as she goes through that suffering, this is kind of a, a chronicle of the things that she found helpful. There's a, there's a couple of appendices in the back uh, that, are, that are just gold. Again, the book, Buyer, buyer Beware here, it's, it's a tough one to read. It's, it's an easy read, but it's a tough one to read because of the subject matter. Um, uh, she goes through a period of time in her suffering, she calls it the, uh, my swearing phase. So there is, there is one F-bomb. I just make mention of that. Um, but she, she says this in, in one of the appendix. Uh, it, again, the appendixes in the back are like uh, things not to say when you're with someone who's suffering and, and things that are helpful when you're with someone suffering. And uh, uh, in the first opinion, I'll just read this one. Um, and that is the, the title of her book. What she says, this isn't helpful. Uh, she says, don't say to someone who's suffering, um, everything happens for a reason. Um, and, and here's what she says about that. The only thing worse than, um, than saying this is pretending that you know the reason. Uh, she said, I've had hundreds of people tell me the reason for my cancer. Because of my sin, because of my unfaithfulness, because God is fair, because God is unfair, uh, because of my aversion to Brussels sprouts. <laughs> she says, uh, she says um, I mean, no one is short of reasons. So if people tell you this, make sure, you, make sure you're there when they go through their cruelest moments of their lives and start offering your own, she says. When someone is drowning, this is an important point, I think, and, and, and a tough one. She says, when someone is drowning, the only thing worse than failing to throw them a life preserver is handing them a reason. Uh, tough words, but, but what do people need when they're suffering? They, they just need presence. They just, they just need you to be there. That's what Paul does, right? Suffering together. Suffering is a team sport. Second thing, I think, is, is this that comes out of this, and that is, uh, it's important that we, that we refute the prosperity gospel, which offers a reason for everything. But what we see in Scripture and what we see through Paul's life and all of 2 Timothy is this. Adversity and blessing are not mutually exclusive. Right? It's a false dichotomy to think that, that if I'm being blessed, there will be no adversity in my life. Or if I'm experiencing adversity, it's because I've done something wrong and there's no blessing. That is a false dichotomy. Uh, the fact is, in Scripture and in life, Adversity and blessing are included. It's all part of the product. It's all part of living this life. And, and, and God, even if he doesn't take away that adversity, there is blessing in the fact that we can suffer with one another. We can suffer with purpose. And, and that we can suffer patiently knowing, knowing that Christ in the end, in this, Christ said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have suffering. But be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Not that, not that you'll be exempt from trials, but that through the trials, there is meaning. There is purpose. Uh, and, and there can be blessing in that. And, and then finally, I think the idea of, of that idea of investing with, with patience or suffering with patience, suffering with the end in view, is, is that is, what am I doing now to prepare for that? What am I doing to invest in eternal things? A wise seminary professor once challenged me by saying uh, that there are only two things that last forever in this life. That is God's Word and God's people. So when I consider what I'm spending my time on, when I'm considering what, what am I investing in, what, what is going on 
in my life right now, what am I doing about God's Word and God's people? You want to end with purpose? Start there. What can I do about God's Word? What can I do to help teach? Maybe you're not a teacher, but can, can you invest in, in somehow facilitating the gospel being spread to whatever age group God has passioned you with? God's Word and God's people, investing in people. Am I available to suffer with people? That's a high calling right there. Uh, the Bible says that, it, that it's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to the house of feasting. For death is the end of every man, and the living will take it to heart. Am, am I invested enough in people that I would be willing to suffer with them and to share in their suffering? Of, of, of my experiences, wedding versus funeral, funerals are holy ground. And if, if, if you are there when people are suffering, that is holy ground. If you are there at the point in which life slips away from someone's loved one, that is, that is holy ground. That is impactful. And, and so, so God wants us to know, I think, through the life of Paul, these three things, and that is we can suffer well in this life and that we can have blessings from suffering. The Bible doesn't try to explain it away. The Bible doesn't prosperity gospel it away. Suffering is part of the deal. But we can suffer well if we will suffer with God's people, if we will suffer with purpose, and if we will suffer with patience, keeping the end in mind. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how you've challenged us with these things. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for how you've ministered through the Apostle Paul, through many, many sufferings. Uh, sufferings that would be too great for me to bear, for sure, I confess. Uh, but Father, help me to be someone who would, uh, would be involved in suffering to the point where I would go to someone's side and just to help suffer with them, just to help to carry that burden. Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for these things. We thank you for um, how you preserved them, how you brought them to us. Help us to live by them. Uh, we thank you for everything you do for us. We thank you for what we perceive as you not doing for us as well. Even if you don't, Father, even if you don't, uh, we will still sing your praises. We will still glorify you, knowing that you will, in the end, save us. We look forward to that day. We thank you in Jesus' name for these things. Amen. Let's stand. I'll give you the, the benediction. I've, I've done a bit of a, a cut-up from the passages that we've studied today to, to come up with this benediction, and it is this. May the Lord be with your spirit, as Paul told Timothy, and yours, and yours, and yours, and yours individually. May the Lord be with your spirit, and grace be with you all. May the Lord rescue you from every evil attack and bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.